Welcome to the Monthly Ideas Exchange podcast, brought to you by ASX, the heart of Australia's financial markets. Each month, we'll connect you to a range of leading industry experts who'll give you a look into the finance industry and deliver valuable insights. Hear about important market events, industry research, tips for your own market research, as well as innovative products to help you diversify your investment portfolio. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Ideas Exchange podcast. As interest rates reach all-time lows, investors are actively searching for investments that can provide them with a reliable and consistent income to help them fund their living expenses, lifestyle and retirement. For investors looking for income, commercial real estate debt is an asset class that they may consider given this asset class aims to provide them with regular and consistent income. To help us learn more about the investment opportunities behind the commercial real estate debt asset class, I'll be joined by Ying Peng Chu, Director of Strategy at Qualitas, one of Australia's leading alternative real estate investment managers. So a fun episode lined up, come join Yin and me as we explore the world of commercial real estate debt. Hi, Yin. Uh, Welcome to the Ideas Exchange podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, Martin. It's really fantastic to be able to join the podcast this time. So in today's episode, uh, we are going to be covering the commercial real estate debt asset class, short for CRE debt. It is an asset class that can provide investors with exposure to the property asset class without actually owning it. This asset class is particularly interesting given it specifically aims to provide regular and consistent income and is relevant in today's low interest rate world. So I guess a good place to start in, for those that are not too familiar with what CRE debt is, can you tell us or provide us with a quick overview of what it is? Sure. Uh, So CRE debt is essentially a loan that's provided to finance real estate, both for investment and development purposes. We all know that real estate is an asset class that is heavily borrowed against. And in fact, it's quite rare that With regards to real estate, um, it's purchased outright by 100% equity. So there's always going to be borrowings against property. And so this is that unique opportunity around the CRE debt. Specifically, the borrowers of CRE loans, they are distinctly commercial. That is, they are wholesale. Um, They typically property developers, private corporations, high net worth groups and individuals that own and develop properties for commercial purposes. It's important to note that these are not home loans to retail borrowers such as individual owner occupiers and, and investors. Importantly, CRE loans, uh, they are secured by real property mortgages, meaning if the borrower cannot repay the loan, the lender has the right to sell the property to recoup repayment of the loan. And this is the capital preservation feature of this asset class that is so desirable. And just lastly, recapping on the income aspects of CRE debt, the income is actually generated from the borrowers paying loan fees and regular interest payments at agreed rates. So I think that's a great summary about CRE debt. And the two kind of main points that I really get away, uh, take away from it is firstly that CRE loans, they are loans to commercial borrowers. They're not your retail borrowers like your owner occupiers and your investors. So uh, commercial borrowers, like you've mentioned, are property developers and property investors. I assume probably also AREITs as well um, and probably large uh, corporations. 
Um, and another interesting point is that CRE loans you mentioned, uh, they're all secured by real property, real security property. So I guess, you know, that kind of has like a capital preservation feature to that particular asset class. Now, in terms of the CRE debt uh, market landscape, how big is the CRE debt market? Look, the uh, CRE debt market in Australia, uh, we estimate that to be around $380 billion, of which the banks have a 93% market share. They're predominantly the main providers of CRE debt. And the remaining 7% gap is actually provided by alternative lenders such as Qualitas. And this represents the private CRE debt market. And this is around $25 billion. The CRE debt market actually continues to grow year on year by about 2 to 4% in recent years, um, which is, has been at a result, as a result of low interest rates, natural population growth and urban expansion. What is quite remarkable about the dynamics at play within the CRE debt market is that there has been a permanent structural shift whereby alternative lenders are increasingly gaining market share as a result of bank pullback of CRE lending over the last decade. Since the GFC, the banks have been subject to increasing prudential regulation and stricter lending requirements, thereby reducing their appetite to CRE lending. That's some particularly interesting points about the CRE debt, in particular the the private CRE debt market and the growing, I guess, growing market for alternative lenders. And I think you mentioned a really interesting point about, you know, some banks pulling away from CRE lending due to, I guess, uh, increased regulation from, I guess, regulatory bodies. So I guess it is clear that uh, CRE debt market, it is an asset class that's growing. Now, one of the most common ways for investors to get exposure to this growing asset class is through a fund structure, such as a ASX listed investment trust, which they can buy through their broker. Now, what I've always tried to get my head around, though, when I did a bit of research about this topic is how exactly does a fund that invests in CRE debt actually generate income for its investors? Sure. Look, very happy to go through that. So CRE debt can be accessed typically through a fund structure, and, and that is a, a managed investment scheme, uh, which can be listed or unlisted. And investors can purchase units to invest in these vehicles. And those particular vehicles will invest directly in, in CRE debt. So an investment manager is typically appointed to manage the fund. Um, The investment manager has a specialised skill set in the underlying asset class and will invest the pooled investor equity capital into CRE loans on a discretionary basis. The underlying CRE loans, they typically generate loan interest and fee income for the fund, which in turn is paid as a regular cash distribution to investors, typically monthly in line with the interest payment frequency. And the role of the investment manager is quite an important one because the investment manager will source and originate all lending opportunities, undertake the loan assessment and due diligence process to ensure that it meets the investment objectives and mandate of the fund. The investment manager also undertakes active management of the loan throughout its life cycle to ensure risks are managed such that it will not impact the performance of the loan. That is the ability of the borrower to meet payment of interest and loans principal when due. Yeah, so I think that really clarifies the the mystery, right? So if I was an investor and I wanted to invest in a listed investment trust that in, invested in CRE loans, I'd buy it from my broker. The capital then goes to a, an investment manager. The investment manager then uses that capital to invest in CRE loans which in turn, then they provide CRE loans uh, to borrowers and the borrowers in turn will then pay 
I'm assuming uh, loan fees and the loan interest repayments to the lender, who then in turn passes it on to the investor as a regular income. So that kind of clarifies that mystery. So in the entire investment universe for income, there are a range of options that can provide income. Uh, you know, that ranges from term deposits, bonds, property, equity, and each of those have varying degrees of risk and returns. So when you look at the investment universe for income, can you tell me where you think CRE debt sits in the risk and return scale? Sure. With regards to private CRE debt, it it can actually provide some really attractive risk-adjusted returns relative to other income-focused investments. So CRE debt risk and returns, they're usually higher than corporate bonds and loans, but we believe they are much lower than hybrids and equities or owning property, which is higher up on the risk curve. So when looking at the capital structure and the wind-up of a, of a company or sale of assets, secured debt is always repaid first, followed by unsecured debt, subordinated debt, hybrids, then lastly equity. And this particular key feature of CRE debt is that it's classified as secured debt. So it has the highest priority in the capital structure uh, and those investors will always get their money repaid first. So it's a really good indication of where it sits on the, the return, sorry, the risk scale. And in terms of the return, it's commensurate with a sort of a moderate risk compared to other income focused assets. Yeah. So I think when I try to remember what I've learned in uh, university, you've said that uh, CRE loans fall under the secure debt category. So f- from memory, that means that CRE investors or CRE holders, they tend, well, they will get paid first, I guess, in the uh, repayment priority uh, in the windup of a company's assets, because I think it goes secure debt, unsecured debt, uh, subordinated debt, hybrids, and then equity. So I thought that was particularly interesting, something that um, I wasn't really familiar with. Now, in terms of asset allocation, where does CRE debt sit in an investor's portfolio, i.e. does it sit within the equity bucket, the property bucket, alternatives, or fixed income bucket? Um, Look, we believe that CRE debt is uh, quite unique in that it can actually fit into three asset classes, firstly being fixed income, given CRE debt is a credit instrument and it generates a fixed level of income from agreed interest and fees and also benefits from less capital volatility because of the uh, real property security. And there's also no secondary market trading of private CRE debt. Um, We believe it's on par with fixed income. Secondly, we think it also fits into property given it provides exposure to the property market, given the underlying secured properties. And lastly, CRE debt can also be classified as alternatives since it doesn't exactly fit into the other traditional asset classes. So I guess whilst the determination of asset class allocation is based on individual investor profiles, CRE debt provides additional diversification regardless. Yeah, it's probably one of the most unique asset classes in terms of at least the asset classes that I've learned about at my time at AESX. You know, most asset classes generally either sit in the equity, property, fixed income, alternatives bucket. But CRE debt kind of is unique. It, sit, it can sit in the fixed income uh, bucket. It can sit in the alternatives. And it could also sit in the property asset class as well. So I guess, you know, for those particular reasons, it can be a great asset class to add diversification to a portfolio. So we've kind of covered where CRE debt sits in the investment portfolio. Can you outline any reasons or the particular reasons why investors should consider investing in the CRE debt asset class? Sure. Look, we think that investors who prefer less capital volatility or have income targeted strategies such as retirees, they are often attracted to CRE debt. And in terms of the the benefits, you know, we we summarize this as first fact that 
there's a stable operating environment for alternative lenders. Alternative lenders have been operating for more than 30 years in the Australian CRE debt market. So the, uh, the market is, is, is quite stable and in fact growing. Uh, secondly, it's quite an accessible asset class for investor types, you know, whether you're institutional, wholesale or retail. It provides regular and at a level of predictable income given the loan interest and fees are agreed and known. And the risk-adjusted returns can uh, be quite an attractive premium to the current low cash rate, noting that the premium is commensurate with the risk undertaken. It also provides excellent capital preservation characteristics as all loans are secured by real property mortgages and also has the benefit of exposure to the property market without the equity risk of actually owning the property. Um, But most importantly, it's a very simple credit strategy. It's very easily understood compared to other more complicated investments such as hybrids or ETFs and can actually provide diversification uh, to an investment portfolio. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's yeah, you've gone through a lot of the the benefits, um, which I think I think when I think about it, you know, uh, what type of investor that may be attracted to this asset class is probably like you have investors that seek reliable income, less capital volatility, any investors that want exposure to the property asset class. You can almost think that, you know, this might be suitable for those investors looking for those qualities. And examples could be like retirees, people at the latter stages of their lives that can't afford to take risk and lose capital. So this could be a useful asset class for those particular investors that are looking for investments with those particular features. So we've covered a lot of the basics of the CRE debt asset class. So I wanted to move on to a more practical example of how investors can get exposure to the CRE debt asset class, namely by buying units in the Qualitas Real Estate Income Fund under the ASX ticker QRI through their broker. So could you give us a quick overview of the investment strategy of QRI? Yes, sure. So QRI has a very simple and focused investment strategy of investing only in CRE loans predominantly in Australia, which are all secured by real property mortgages. Um, And as mentioned before, CRE debt is a very specialised asset class and distinct from equities, bonds and corporate loans. QRI's portfolio is currently comprised of 32 loans, which are 91% senior first mortgage and 9% mezzanine second mortgage. The portfolio is very well diversified across loan type, borrower, geography, and property sector. In terms of loan types, for example, this you know encompasses bank, so QRI invests in investment loans, residual stock loans, construction loans, and land loans. So QRI, it is structured as an ASX-listed investment trust, i.e. a closed-ended fund. What are some of the reasons why Qualitas decided to structure QRI as a listed investment trust? Look, that's um, a really good question and it, it relates to having successfully established a wholesale property debt funds platform over uh, the last decade within our business and we have senior and mezzanine debt strategies and I, I suppose we wanted to further diversify our investor base and bring a similar CRE debt offering to the retail market in a listed and liquid form. Being listed means investors can buy and sell units readily and provide some access to liquidity. We also felt the lit structure was beneficial to investors as there is no tax on uh, the trust's income and therefore all income can be paid out to investors in the form of distributions. Yeah, I think there's some great points of, of why you mentioned, you know, QRI is structured as a, as a listed investment trust and, you know, I specifically work with fund managers to help list ETFs. And I can tell you in the ETF structure, we wouldn't allow an ETF to hold CRE loans because it is a liquid uh, asset class. So this particular asset class actually fits quite neatly in the listed investment trust structure. 
And I think what's really interesting about the listed investment trust structure is that it does allow investors to get exposure to asset classes that they can't get access to their own because they can access the expertise of you know investment managers like Qualitas, like yourselves, um, because that's the only way to get access to that asset class. So yeah, particularly interesting insights of why you structured QRI as a lid. Now, with any investment, I think it's important to understand some of the key risks. In the context of CRE debt, um, what are some of the main risks that investors should be aware of? With any investment, uh, I suppose that is defined as two aspects. So specifically the loss of capital and or loss of income. So in the context of CRE debt, loss of principal, of loan principal, this is a risk that the borrower cannot actually repay the loan. And the security property value declines and it's insufficient to actually meet full repayment if that security is in force. So that, that's, that's the loss of principal component. With regard to the risk around loss of income, this is the risk that the cash flow from the property or other borrower sources will be insufficient to pay the loan interest and fees that is due to the lender. So in terms of managing some of the inherent risks of CRE debt, we kind of group this into two areas. We specifically classify them as one, a credit risk or whether it's a valuation risk. And credit risk is essentially the determination through assessment of the credit worthiness and the ability of the borrower to service the loan and what factors can affect such this ability to service loans, such as the financial standing, the experience and track record, the underlying property performance and market conditions. And uh, credit risk is quite important for identifying all known risks to a transaction so the loan can be appropriately priced relative to the risk. Um, And just really quickly, the valuation risk is the risk that the security property value is insufficient to cover repayment of the loan. And what underpins the, the valuation risk is essentially four factors being the strength of the underlying property cash flow, which supports the property yield and can impact any change in rental rates, occupancy and vacancy. Secondly, the point in the market cycle for that sector based on economic conditions, you know, has the property performance be impacted by macroeconomic conditions? And thirdly, market conditions such as supply and demand dynamics, for example, taking a look at residential Undersupply can be due to high demand for a particular location or underbuilding, and therefore that can underpin the property valuation. And lastly, where investors are investing their capital impacts the relatively relative asset yields between property and as- other asset classes. You know, that's a great summary of some of the risk that you've mentioned that's related to the CRE debt asset class. And I kind of take two way two main points from it. I guess the main risk in CRE debt is credit risk, which is basically the assessment of the credit worthiness of the borrower, but also the security property value, as well as the valuation risk, just um, making sure that you understand what is, are the sort of factors that may impact the, the potential property valuations. I guess when I look at some of those uh, risks that you've mentioned as an investment manager, are you like actively ensuring that you're monitoring each lending opportunity and just making sure that uh, you can anticipate some of the uh, valuation and credit risk issues earlier just so it doesn't impact the performance of the loan? Um, it, do, do you guys do that? Yeah, for um, for sure. As an experienced CRE debt manager, uh, we firstly identify all known risks by undertaking very extensive due diligence through a rigorous credit and valuation assessment process, which involves scenario analysis and, and, and stress testing on various conditions. We also seek to mitigate those risks by ensuring we are structuring the terms of the loan, commensurate with the risk, appetite and return that we are prepared to accept. 
For example, um, you know, when we look at loan to value ratio, we ask ourselves, you know, how comfortable are we to lend against a property? And, you know, what specifically do we want as the equity buffer to manage times of volatility where we feel there is risk to that property valuation? Um, we also look at what is the appropriate tenor, which is important to to managing the credit risk because the, the longer that we expose to uh, that particular loan, um, there's market risk and other factors that might impact performance. So we'll always best match our loan tenor to the risk appetite. When it comes to construction loans, uh, we, we look at the minimum level pre-sales for residential projects uh, before funding can commence. And, and pre-sales are very important to, to be able to prove up the viability of the project um, and ultimately the end value that's realised to repay the loan. Um, so I guess in summary, uh, not only is the initial credit assessment and loan structuring important for managing credit risk, it's actually very important for lenders to undertake on ongoing management of each loan to anticipate these issues earlier and ensure loan performance is not impacted and hence preserving investor capital and investor returns. And at, at Qualitas, we undertake individual loan reviews of each loan in the QRI portfolio on a monthly basis and more frequently, if required, for deals that are of heightened risk. So I guess on the topic of risk, you know, it was only just a year ago that we saw, you know, a major uh, sell-off due to the, to the fears of the COVID-19 pandemic. What was the overall impact of the equity market sell-off on QRI? Yeah, look, um, before I go into um, what actually happened to QRI's unit price when COVID hit, it's, it's firstly just to re- recap on QRI's trading performance since the IPO in November 2018. QRI was actually trading quite well. It was predominantly trading at a premium to its NAV of $1.60. And uh, like all uh, listed vehicles, QRI was not immune to COVID-19. And, you know, this induced bear market actually caused QRI's unit price to decline by about 35% to unit price of around $1.10 at its lowest point in March 2020. And this uh, was uh, quite a significant dislocation to QRI's NAV, net asset value, which had remained stable with no impairment since the IPO or throughout the COVID-19 period. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, those are so great insights in terms of what happened to QRI during the equity market sell-off and where it is today. And, you know, when I think about listed investment trust structures, you know, there's a I guess a myth that if you're in that structure and you have a discount to your NTA that you're in there forever. But, you know, I, I guess like a, if you have like a lit and you have a fund manager that knows what they're doing, you know, it is possible to close that gap because generally those gaps tend to arise due to the, the mismatch between supply and, and demand. Now, final question before I let you go, um, you know, it's been a very interesting topic. It is quite complex and I'm sure that, you know, a lot of our listeners will have some further questions about, you know, the CRE debt market. So for those looking to learn a bit more about it, as well as QRI, where can they head to? Yeah, look, um, we're very passionate with educating our investors on CRE debt and we actually have quite a suite of materials available on QRI's website, www.qualitas.com.au forward slash QRI. Um, which also includes a CPD accredited content for financial advisors. And investors can also access all QRI ASICs announcement and fund performance updates on our website. Or, you know, investors can also contact us directly by email at qri at qualitas.com.au. Yeah, well, that wraps up today's episode. Um, it was a really fun chat, Yin, and I wanted to thank you for taking your time out of your day and sharing your knowledge on the often uninvested, uh, underinvested CRE debt asset class. Uh, we look forward to having you back down on the road. Thanks, Martin. Thanks for um, allowing me to contribute today. Well, that concludes today's episode. 
It was a fun episode, learning about the commercial real estate debt asset class and how it can be suitable for investors looking for an investment that generates regular income and less capital volatility. In next month's episode, I'll be joined by Megan Victor, head of Spider ETFs Asia Pacific at State Street Global Advisors, as we celebrate 20 years of ETFs and learn about how the ETF market started, how it has evolved, and what the future looks like. Until then, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us next month. ASX Limited ABN 9800862491 and its related bodies corporate, ASX, makes content available for podcast content and the content may be downloaded on these conditions. ASX grants a non-exclusive license to download the content for private and non-commercial use only. You may not use the content for any other purpose, including without limitation distribution to a third party or implying a connection between you or any third party and ASX, its offices, employees or contractors. The views, opinions or recommendations of the author or speaker in the content are solely those of the author or speaker and do not in any way reflect the views, opinions, recommendations of ASX. The content is provided for educational purposes only and is not intended to include or constitute financial product advice. You should obtain independent advice from an Australian Financial Services licensee before making any investment decisions. ASX does not give any representation or warranty with respect to the accuracy, reliability, completeness or currency of the content. To the extent permitted by law, ASX and its employees, officers and contractors are not liable for any loss or damage arising in any way, including by way of negligence, from or in connection with any information provided or omitted or from anyone acting or refraining to act in reliance on this information. 